Hi, Dan. Hello, Duane. Are you ready to talk about free trade? I always am ready to talk about free trade. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is free trade and was recorded on November 26, 2019. Here's the gentleman who will be helping us understand this complex issue in this installment. My name is Dan Pearson. I'm a trade policy fellow at Americans for Prosperity. Dan, if you don't mind, um, before we get into the, the nitty gritty about trade, I, I'm curious about your story. Can you tell me how your journey from where you started to how you got here now? What um, What is your story? My goodness, yeah. Probably simpler to work backwards rather than forwards. So, so uh, I've I've been at AFP since June this year. Prior to that, I was a, an independent consultant for a couple of years. Before that, four years at the Cato Institute, libertarian think tank here in Washington that many listeners may be familiar with. Prior to that, I spent ten years at the U.S. International Trade Commission, both as chairman and a commissioner. Uh, uh, working on anti-dumping countervailing duty cases and intellectual property cases where there were infringements by infringements of U.S. patents by imported products, so uh, a lot of kind of enforcement work there on trade remedy issues. Prior to that, I spent 16 years doing mostly trade policy work at a company called Cargill in Minneapolis. Some of your listeners also will be familiar with Cargill. Uh, it's a major trading company that very much likes to keep trade flowing. Border barriers are a problem for companies like Cargill and for anyone else involved with the global economy, frankly. So uh, I had that experience. Prior to that, I was I worked in the U.S. Senate for six years for a Republican senator from Minnesota, Rudy Boschwitz. Uh, he chaired the subcommittee on foreign agricultural policy, and uh, through that subcommittee, we did what we could to try to lay some of the groundwork for the start of the Uruguay Round negotiations. This was back in the 1980s. Prior to that, I farmed for a living in East Central Minnesota. I farmed for, for two years. Uh, and. Um, uh, then got recruited to uh, go into uh, policy work, and my life has just gone downhill since then. <laughs> that is that. That's fascinating. What what attracted attracts you to trade? I mean, that's you and I have mm. talked about this. I find it fascinating. I, I know you do. But what is it about that 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 you've dedicated a whole career to it? Uh, Part of it, I think, is growing up in a household where we almost always had a student from another country working on the farm. My father, through his farming career, hosted some 35 students, most of them from non-English speaking countries. So from the time I was a little kid, even before I was born, there were people in the house who were here to work on the farm, learn about agriculture, learn English, and uh, they were just part of my life. They were people who I uh, generally looked up to, and uh, uh, they made me interested in other parts of the world. Where were they from? Why did they speak with such strange accents? Um, so I, I, I went to the University of Minnesota and did bachelor's and master's degrees in applied economics, 
and and then I decided to take some time off and go visit these folks. So I, I took a year and a half, went once around the world visiting friends and working on farms, and then came back and started farming myself. So, so it was uh, the the interest in the rest of the world and in trade with with the rest of the world. I think goes way back for me. Here's my question, then, Dan, to start off this podcast. Why are we engaged in, in this issue? Why are we engaged as a community in trade? Well, the community wasn't focused on trade for some number of years, as, as you know. It, it got into trade issues very consciously in 2018, and I believe that was largely in response to the trade war that was just getting started at that point. The, the underlying reality is that whenever a, a, a country restricts its imports, it's reducing the freedom of its own citizens to do business with whomever they want. It also is making a decision to reduce its own standard of living. Economists would call it reduce its own economic welfare. And that's because uh, we can take an example like steel. When when the United States decided to impose 25% steel tariffs, that applied to all steel consumed in the U.S. economy. Now, U.S. steel mills produce about 75 or 80% of the steel that's used in this country. The other portion is imported. So, and in a commodity market like steel, when there's an import restriction, the price of all steel in the U.S. economy rises. Uh, all of a sudden, you have a situation where the steel mills benefited by uh, on their 75% of the market because they got a higher price. Okay? But that was more than offset by the consumers of steel paying on 100% of domestic consumption that higher price. So we... The, the U.S. economy just plain lost out by getting less benefit from the steel tariff than it was, it was getting in cost. That same concept works for any import tariff. It's like putting a tax on any transaction, and the government isn't going to expect to have more of those transactions happening when it's just made them more expensive. Right, and, and one thing that, that it goes to, to that is this idea that there's what is seen and what is unseen. And on the news, we would constantly see this mill is opened and this mill is opened. But what we don't see are the, the people downstream that are losing out. Steel, again, is a good example because, uh, you know, this steel mills themselves, they're an important business, but they are not huge. They employ only about 140,000 steel mill workers at most. Okay and they produce 0.2% of U.S. GDP, so relatively modest share. The downstream firms that take steel and make it into something more useful employ 6.5 million people, and they add close to $6 trillion to the GDP. Uh, almost 6% of GDP is is added in those downstream industries. So when we adopt a policy that has given the United States the highest steel prices of any country in the world, yes, the mills may be happy, but everybody who uses it, all of a sudden, they're, they're making products 
that have to compete every day with imported goods from countries that don't have the highest steel prices in the world. Mm -hmm. So it's not too hard to understand why the downstream manufacturers are facing really intense competitive pressures. Some of them are closing. Uh, many of them are uh, trimming workers, delaying investments, just hoping something will change so that they can get back to what they would consider a more normal, cost-effective business. They just can't compete very effectively with their competitors in Canada and Mexico or further afield than that who can take the same steel and make the same grain bin or make the same uh, automobile or the same snowplow. It, you just can't deal with the type of price disadvantage that our steel-consuming manufacturers currently are having to live with. Trade is part of the uh, the openness PI. I was wondering if you could speak to why it's in that particular priority initiative. What what is it about openness that that says trade should be here? I think it probably goes back to human nature. If I could take it back that far, the you know the, when mankind was developing, we were. All, 200, 300,000 years ago, we were all running around, our ancestors rather, were running around in relatively small groups of hunter-gatherers on the plains of Africa. And you had 50 or 80 people together, working together, surviving together. And it really was helpful to them to be self-sufficient and not have to depend too much on outsiders. Because whenever they had to deal with outsiders, somebody could get hurt. You know, there was just a lot of uh, violence that went along with engaging with other people. Uh, and so I think that generation after generation, the people who survived tended to be those who had genes that were focused on self-sufficiency and concerned about outsiders. Okay, so now bring that forward to AFP and the openness focus. Both trade and immigration have, have to deal with that same, those same issues of concern about the outsiders, wanting to be self-sufficient. So we have kind of this instinctual um, response to foreigners or foreign goods, and we have to consciously work to overcome that. Um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the way I've sometimes said it is that in trade policy, we all have we all have protectionist instincts. I mean, I confess it myself because when I go to a football game, who do I like to cheer for? The away team or the the home team? Usually the home team. Oh, I'm yeah, I, I I'm all over it. See, so I I know that feeling, and I understand when people have a reaction against imports, why it's so similar to my feelings at a football game. Uh, so when you think about openness, also. What what happens to a society when it closes itself off? I mean, we've seen this. There's a, a great video by Don Boudreau out there who talks about, um, I, I believe it was Tasmania, when the, the, the waters came up, it closed off those islands, and they actually lost technology that they developed mm -hmm. because they were unable to trade with others. So when you look at it, when you look at a country like a North Korea, or or a Japan, when it was closed off. It did not technologically advance. It did not advance as a society. Has that been your experience? Uh, well, I think there's a great deal that mankind has benefited from exchanging ideas and thoughts with each other. 
uh, we, um, no man is an island, no country really exists all that well by itself. Uh, I think that uh, engagement with others is one of the fundamental foundations of human progress. And I, I don't know of anyone who argues the opposite. It's a, it, I, I like the fact that you said in there when you exchange ideas, because a lot of people, when they think about trade, they think it's just goods back and forth. Mm-hmm. But when you trade, when we trade goods with a, a more closed society like a China, we're also exchanging ideas at the same time. Absolutely. And in, in addition to goods, of course, we also exchange services. We trade services. The United States, for instance, is quite good in architecture. And, and so a, a firm in another country that wants to build a, a, a a new museum might come to the United States and get an architect from here to to design that museum. So that sort of exchange of ideas and innovation is what kind of it, it helps to um, uh, put the global economy on a on a faster incline. It just it it it's spurs innovation. So let's talk about where exactly, or what exactly, as a community, we stand for in, in this. Um, and uh, if there's anything you want to want to go off into, uh, just you know, it's it's open format. Just let me know. But I mean, what what do we as a community stand for when it comes to trade? Just complete openness with the world? That sounds crazy. Well. Uh, that is the direction that we would see as most desirable. No, yeah. No question. The, let me start, though, with a key exception. There are some countries that we really don't want to do too much business with for national security reasons. For instance, we could make money by selling nuclear technology to North Korea. Almost everyone would agree that's a really bad idea. Okay, <laughs> and the same thing, something simpler. We have not sold night vision goggles to ISIS. Okay, we, there are things we have that give us a national security advantage, and we we want to be cautious about selling anything to someone else that might be used against us. Okay, we have in the U.S. government a process for that. The CFIUS is, is what it's called, the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States that deals with those sensitive, potentially sensitive trade items. Okay, So set aside those that have genuine national security concerns. And I, throughout. I, I believe Adam Smith even spoke about that in Wealth of Nations when he talked about trade. He said, you know, there are national security interests that come before free trade. Right. But now my view is that's a relatively small subset of issues, and it clearly doesn't include steel and aluminum that we have uh, Section 232 tariffs on now, theoretically justified by national security concerns from having too much of those imports, which I think it's very difficult to find uh, intellectually honest justification for that view. Especially when the Department of Defense itself says, no, that we don't feel this way. I think the Department of Defense was much more concerned about stepping on the toes of good allies by restricting trade with mm-hmm. them, you know. So yeah, that's you're absolutely right. I believe at the time Mattis General Mattis who was uh, the head of the George, Secretary, Secretary, Secretary of Defense, Defense yeah. he said we only get only 3% the our, our needs from the uh, manufacturing sector for metal. It's only 3% of what we produce. So right. we actually produce 30 times more steel in America than the military needed. Right. And and 
on top of that, most of the steel that we import anyway is from good allies. Canada Japan, and Mexico. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Germany, South Korea. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's not like we've been importing much from challenging countries. We have, we do import some from China, all of them, that's pretty restricted now. We do import some from the, Russia, again, relatively restricted. So it's not that no trade happens there, but the imports that we get from those centrally planned economies haven't exactly been threatening our national security. So when you get past the stuff that's for national security, mm-hmm. what is the official community position on this? Just eliminate all trade barriers? Aside from national security interests, yes, that would be the the uh, community position. I mean, and there are good reasons for that. Obviously, on the one hand, there is the individual freedom. Why would we want the government to take away liberty that people have to do business with whomever they want anywhere in the world? I mean, I'm I'm enough of a libertarian to be very comfortable with the idea that people should be free to do what they want up to the point that it hurts someone else. Okay, we don't we don't want people doing things that are harmful to others. Okay, Mm -hmm. and that's why we have some government. We have some laws to try to draw those lines, Um, but then so so the economic freedom side is one issue. The other side is just the the raw economics, okay? The world has limited resources. You know, all resources are scarce. That's why they all have prices. That's why they all have value, okay? And um, when you put a barrier between a a buyer and a seller, you uh, make it more difficult for resources to be used well because good resources are going to be left on the other side of that border. Uh, so we, we want it, it, we want to have free trade just for good resource allocation. Um, the, we have the um, the reality that comparative advantage, which was worked out two hundred years ago by David Ricardo, mm-hmm. that still works in the twenty first century. It's not just something that involves shipments of of Portugal and uh, port and uh, wine and, 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 and wool between Portugal and England, which was how he explained the, the concept. Um, the, basically, comparative advantage says that countries or individuals should focus on whatever they're best at and then trade with others to uh, get the other things they need. It's, that type of specialization has allowed for uh, uh, division of labor and a focus on things that people are really uh, well skilled at, and it has greatly increased economic activity. I mean, if you had to make your own shoes, that at least from speaking for me, it would take me a long time to make a pair of shoes. I'd much rather uh, try to work on trade policy and and let someone else make the shoes, and I'll happily buy them. You know, that goes back to something that uh, Russ Roberts wrote about. Uh, he wrote, well, he's written many things, but one of the, the things that we based our trade presentation on is his article about Treasure Island. And he said in there that self-sufficiency, which you mentioned earlier, self-sufficiency is the road to poverty mm-hmm. and trade is the road to prosperity. Uh, could you explain a little deeper why self-sufficiency is the road to poverty? I mean, true self-sufficiency. We, we have people who think, well, I, you know, I can live out in the country and I can be self-sufficient. I'll have a garden. But they're not really being 
self-sufficient in the way that he's describing. And I think that you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, self-sufficiency can be a road to survival in some instances, but survival is a pretty meager existence, generally speaking. And, and if, if we think about how many useful things other people know how to do, boy, I'd a lot rather engage with them buying and selling than try to um, duplicate what they do. You know, there are people who are a lot better at driving trucks than I am. I, I wouldn't want to try to beat them at that task, okay? Mm -hmm. I, I just accept that uh, people have different skills. Doctors, you know, don't, you would be ill-advised to ask me to diagnose and treat your uh, intestinal problem, okay? I just, I'm, I'm, I just wouldn't do it. Other people have gotten that, that uh, specialization. And it, it isn't even as, as complex as that. I mean, even making a ham sandwich. Mm -hmm. There's a video out there that I, I love referencing, but this man wanted to find out what it would take to make a ham sandwich. And when he said make, he means everything. So he had to grow his own wheat and he had to, <laughs> he wanted to make a chicken sandwich. So he had to hatch an egg and then raise this chicken. And he had to, uh, everything from making the mayonnaise to growing the, the, the flour, you know, growing the wheat for the flour and baking the bread. And he didn't even do it all. I, I still say he didn't do it all himself because one portion of it, he had to fly to the ocean to get like a five gallon jar of, of water so he could let that evaporate, you know, he could make the salt out of that. Mm -hmm. And my thought was, well, you didn't make the plane and you didn't refine the jet fuel and you didn't learn to fly the plane. But still with that, it was $1,500 in six months just to make a sandwich. When you and I can go over to Subway right now, who we did not sponsor this podcast, mm -hmm. by the way, but we can go over there and we can say, I'd like a ham sandwich and it's maybe eight bucks and we'll have it in six minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the book you cite is, is a great example. It, it, it's in a way it's kind of uh, uh, an exercise in absurdity because of course no one would ever try to make a living that way. But the author wanted to make the point of how integrated our economy is within the United States and, and, and globally. I mean, we in the United States really are very fortunate that our founders in the Constitution prohibited states from imposing trade barriers against each other. So we have this 50-state free trade area in the United States that's really served us very well because we have 330 million people here all within that free trade area, uh, all who can do business with each other without anybody putting a border between them. And it's, it's wonderful, okay? The only larger free trade area among states would be in, in uh, the European Union, where you have the separate countries, the 28 of them, I think, that are in the European Union. So they have more people and more countries, but they don't have as good a single market, as good a, a unified market as we do here. So we open our, our market to the world. We say mm -hmm. there are no tariffs, there are no quotas, there are no barriers come and sell to us. Mm -hmm. How does that help us? Why, why would we do that when there are other countries out there who are saying, that's great, United States, and they slap tariffs in, on us? How does, yeah. that, how does that benefit us? How does that help us achieve what we're trying to achieve with our vision of breaking yeah. barriers and creating a society of mutual benefit? Well, I think we have to be very straightforward to just plain understand that imports are good. 
you know, somebody is able to sell us something that we want for of good quality, their quality that meets our needs for less than somebody else. Why wouldn't we do business with them? Uh, and treating imported goods differently than domestically produced goods is it's kind of like economically it's just counter it's 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 non not sensical okay because imports in addition to being really helping consumers they they uh, have greatly helped us companies to become world class if we had no imports we would have automobiles like we had in the 1970s. Some of the listeners may be old enough to remember those. I, I drove a couple of them. And uh, let's I, just... I remember them. I remember. <laughs> I miss the station wagon, wagon sitting backwards and yeah, looking, yeah. you know, making the, the drivers behind you feel uncomfortable as you sat there and yeah. stared. I don't know if you remember that station wagon. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. but let's just, let's just uh, acknowledge that the automobiles being made today are just much, much higher quality. And largely that was in response to the competition from imported automobiles from Germany and Japan. And... The, the U.S. automobile manufacturers, I think, have benefited greatly from that. They have upped their game tremendously. You know, I uh, drove for quite a number of years. My family drove a, a Chrysler town and country van, very much made in this country. But it was a couple decades after the shakeout of the 1970s that it was made. And, you know, we got 200,000 miles on that van before my son finally ended up, um, um, well, let's just say, it, it, it didn't stay on the road quite like it should have, um, <laughs> which was not the van's fault, okay? But uh, uh, when I was growing up, if you could get much more than 100,000 miles on a car, you were just doing really well. And so even, I mean, I, I give that example, so just to think about what Chrysler could have produced in 1970 versus what it was producing in the mid-late 1990s when we bought that van. Uh, I like the competition that comes from trade because it makes us all better. It, it makes us world-class and keeps us world-class. Doesn't uh, um, a fear of trade kind of denote a lack of confidence in American manufacturers? Well, I think it does. You know, And, and, and there's, there's this myth that it keeps getting repeated and not challenged adequately that, you know, U.S. manufacturing is being hollowed out by imports. My comment is to say, yes, the composition of U.S. manufacturing output has changed because of imports, because we really don't manufacture that many T-shirts or tennis shoes in the United States anymore, because those products that require a higher degree of, of labor input can be produced more cost-effectively in other countries. However, here in the United States, we have the largest, currently, we have the highest value added in manufacturing that we've ever had in our history. Okay, so our manufacturing sector has not shrunk, it has gotten larger. Uh, and we, that, in essence, we are producing more airplanes and semiconductors, those high-quality automobiles that we talked about, and, and many other goods that um, uh, more than we had done in the past. So we're doing the high tech stuff and we're doing much less of the relatively lower tech 
stuff. But our manufacturing economy over, over, overall is, is, is the largest it's ever been. Now, it's important to note that manufacturing employment has declined. You know, we peaked out in 1979 at about uh, 19.4 million factory workers, okay? And currently we're somewhere at around 12 and a half million. So there's been a, a meaningful decline. But the decline started well before the NAFTA or the Uruguay round were, were, went into effect in 94 and 95. And um, it, it's continued irregularly since then. Some people think that it's trade that's driving that downward movement in, in manufacturing employment. And the, the study that I found most helpful on this was done in 2015 at Ball State University in uh, Muncie, Indiana. The, the, uh, that study looked at the, the factors that caused the decline in manufacturing employment between two, the year 2000 and the year 2010. And they did indeed find that trade accounted for a meaningful share of the decline, 13%. Okay. The other 87% of the decline, it was the robots. It was the automation in manufacturing that we all are, are familiar with. And, uh, you know, the automation doesn't seem to be politically sensitive, but the trade is politically sensitive. So trade is getting blamed for all of the adjustments that are going on in manufacturing. And it's, I think it's just not a well-founded uh, concern. So what do you say to someone who says that that's all great, but it is unfair that, that uh, say, Japan can import their cars directly to the United States with no barriers, but they erect all these barriers for American manufacturers and make it difficult to, to sell over there? Shouldn't, shouldn't we have the same barriers that they have? Ah, oh, should we have reciprocity with yes. other countries? Ah, oh, um, well, it, that's kind of a tempting argument, and yet it's really uh, fallacious because if you were to take that approach, you would have to have a different set of tariff schedules for every other country that you, you deal with. Uh, so if, hypothetically, if J Japan is charging a 30% import tariff on cars, and I think it's quite a bit lower than that, but I'm saying that, um, then the United States should charge a 30% tariff on their cars. But if the Canadians are charging 0% tariff on cars, then we would charge 0% on theirs. And the tariff schedules are already complicated enough. I know this because I, at the International Trade Commission, that's the part of the government that actually manages the, the harmonized tariff schedule in the United States. So I'm quite familiar with it. And you could easily bump from 10,000 items up, you know, up to uh, many hundreds of thousands of items if you had separate tariff schedules for each country you're doing business with. And, and from a business perspective, imagine how impossibly complicated it would be to manage a supply chain in which you were dealing with different tariffs from different countries at every moment. So I understand the, the, the argument behind reciprocity, and it just doesn't work in the real world. In fact, it would not help us economically. It would hurt us a lot, not just because of the com complexity, but b because it would be n not a race to the bottom in terms of reducing tariffs. It would be a race to the top. And Which we're seeing. Yeah, we are seeing that. And um, 
Keep in mind, every time a country increases a tariff, it reduces its own economic welfare. It, it reduces the standard of living of its own citizens. So if we wanted to have a fully reciprocal tariff schedule, we would be reducing our standard of living a lot. I think a lot of that uh, support for tariffs comes from a misunderstanding of what's actually imported into, into the country and what, what, import, you know, what imports are made of around the world. And the fact is that two-thirds of, of stuff traded around the world is what what's known as intermediate products these are these are parts to a greater whole and i think it's half or just a little less than half of products coming into america are intermediate products so when you raise the cost of those through a, a barrier you're actually increasing the cost of manufacturing for american manufacturers absolutely and that gets right back to the point we were making earlier about steel about how how uh Putting the 25% steel tariff on has given us the highest steel prices in the world and made our downstream manufacturers uncompetitive against imported products. So we've seen that that we believe that we should have zero trade barriers because it will benefit Americans. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get there's a, this concept out there uh, that's fallacious that we can we can create some sort of policy that will benefit everyone and that there will be no losers. If we say there are no trade barriers, true, some people will be hurt, but that is history throughout the ages. That's what has always happened. Yeah. Well, you're, you are familiar with the economist Schumpeter and his theory of uh, um, creative destruction and that the economy was always is always churning and the less efficient, less desirable products are, those companies are being destroyed and new ones are being created. Um, you know, the United States is pretty good at dealing with that sort of creative destruction because it's also inherent in that is creative creation. There are better ideas, better things, more things for people to do. Look, we've got 157 million people working in the United States now, something more than that, the highest level in history. And, and so we've had the decline in manufacturing employment that we mentioned before. Uh, but every month, we're, the United States, for the past number of years, has been producing between 150 and 250 million new jobs. Uh, excuse me, 150 and 250,000 new jobs per month. Now, okay. to put some clarity to that, put some context to that, when you talk about that churn, the United States actually destroys about a million jobs a month and then turns around and creates that plus another 150 to 200,000 jobs a month. So this idea that jobs are, are not being destroyed, we, we destroy jobs every month in the, to the tune of a million or more mm -hmm. a month, and then we turn around and create that and more. And one thing I wanted to talk about was a study that was done that, that talked about the China shock you know, the rise of China and how it's impacted. And Don Boudreau, uh, George Mason uh, economics professor, was talking about this on another podcast. And he said, when you look at the time of that study, because they said that the China shock costs like 2 million jobs right. in manufacturing. He says, when you look at the time of that study, that equates to about 15,000 jobs a month. When we destroy already a million jobs a month, mm -hmm. 15,000 is really kind of a small number when you look at it. Now, it isn't a small number to the person who lost their job there are people who are going to be hurt by certain things. That isn't untrue with tariffs either. We've already talked about that. You put a tariff in place, you're hurting someone else. Mm -hmm. The question is, and it's very utilitarian, 
what is going to do the most good for the most people. Right. Let me just comment on the study that you referred to, the China shock, which was done by uh, Professor Otter, I think. He was one of the chief authors of it. I've had the opportunity to go through that study fairly carefully. This was a few years ago. But I, I recall at the time finding it quite interesting. Uh, and many people were saying, well, it proves that, that China's really taking advantage of the United States and the United States is losing out relative to China in manufacturing. And as you're saying, it did show those changes in employment and some of them related to China. This was at the same time frame in which I was coming to understand the, the study done by Ball State. And some people were saying, well, those are two different results. And I looked at it and thought, my gosh, how close those results are. They were different time frames and some different assumptions and different data sets and whatnot. But the the overall conclusion was really very close. Yes, trade is having an effect on U.S. manufacturing employment. But, you know, the, the Otter study had it at about a factor of two more, more than the study from ball state. So, you know, it's it's in the same ballpark. We can talk about this. I mean, because given the how different the studies were in terms of the, how they were done, the fact that they ended up with such close results, I thought was really uh, quite remarkable. So while we, we do import quite a few things uh, from China, the Americans also export quite a bit of stuff today, too. You said earlier that we're, we're manufacturing as much or more than we ever have the value uh, added in manufacturing is higher than it's ever been before. Yes. So the, uh, we're, in terms of tons of stuff, we might be doing less. But in terms of value of stuff, we're doing more. That's, that's interesting. What, what's, what's important about that difference? Well, if you're, coal isn't a manufactured product. But if you're selling coal, you sell a lot of coal at low value. And you get a lot of tons of exports if, you're, if that's what you're exporting. Mm. Uh, if you are making Boeing airplanes, those are relatively light given given the, you know, the uh, cost. Okay, and so you get a, a lot of dollars of export value for every ton of airplane you ex you, you export. If that makes any sense. No, it makes perfect sense. I just want to make sure that I can wrap my head around it, and I, I get what you're saying. Uh, interesting point about Boeing, by the way. Uh, Boeing manufactures in America but the parts they have come from all over the world. So it's one of those manufacturers that relies on on uh, low-cost imports because the 787, for example, I did a look at that, and, and there are parts of that from all over the world mm -hmm. that come to one spot where they're assembled, and then that is exported as an American product, even mm -hmm. though parts of it come from Sweden and parts of it come from Japan mm -hmm. and parts of it come from South Korea. It's it's We see things that are manufactured in America, and I think a lot of people may have the idea that 100% of that comes from America. And we rely on trade to make those those goods at a low cost. See, it goes back to the point we were discussing earlier about comparative advantage. It's a reflection that in Boeing's supply chain, they recognize that some producer in Sweden is really good at making a product that absolutely fits what they need in that plane and, and another manufacturer in Canada will have a product and so on. So the, they put together a supply chain that tries to bring the best in the world together and make it into a Boeing aircraft. Getting back to exports, we've, we've got this narrative, I guess, that American manufacturing is dying and we're not 
exporting as you know like we used to what what's the truth there well the united states is the world's largest trading company in terms of the value of imports plus exports okay we import more than any other country we export the second most in the world china exports more goods than we do okay but we uh we are a very credible second and like i was saying before the stuff we export tends to be higher, higher value, higher tech than what China is exporting. I mean, China exports quite a range of stuff from very basic stockings to uh, uh, quite sophisticated iPhones that they met, they put together in China at the request of Apple. Okay, um, but uh, they, they get very little value out of that assembly process. Most of the value of the iPhone is actually captured here in the United States, the design and uh, engineering. When you talk about exports and you talk about imports, immediately the mind goes to the difference between the two, which brings us to the idea of a trade deficit. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of confusion about what the trade deficit is, what it, where it comes from, and what it means to Americans. So uh, I, I've received quite a few looks when I replied to someone in a training that in the history of statistics in mankind, there are few more worthless statistics than trade deficit statistics. People react to that. Um, I, was, I was curious if you could explain the idea of trade deficits and whether or not I'm incorrect and, and should amend what I'm saying. Why should we worry about trade deficits? Well... I don't think we should, but the let me just say that I think some people do confuse the trade deficit with the federal budget deficit. Okay, now the federal budget deficit is a real concern because that is money our government is borrowing that it has no no near term prospect of ever paying back, and so our children and grandchildren are going to get stuck with that very large federal debt. That is a problem. Okay. But it's a separate problem than what we're talking about now. Uh, the, the trade deficit is it, it is uh, misunderstood by a lot of people. It's when you when a country has a trade deficit, it, it in essence has a surplus of capital coming in, and uh, that's the situation that the United States is in. We invest more money here than than we save, okay? And uh, in order to fill that gap between our savings and the, what's, what's invested, we import capital, money. Uh, and that can be from Japan to build a new car factory. It can be from uh, Germany to buy some federal treasury debt, you know, some treasury bonds. Um, but, uh, that, that influx of capital is largely what's driving the trade uh, deficit. Because what happens when a person in Japan uh, goes ahead and uh, buys a treasury bill? Uh, he is having to sell some yen in order to buy dollars. And he, uh, with those dollars, he gets the the treasury bill he wants. But someone sold him dollars and now is holding yen. What can you do with those yen? They're not worth anything in the United States. If you want to 
do something with yen, you got to go back to Japan. Uh, what do you do in Japan with a bunch of yen? Well, maybe I should buy some Sony PlayStations. And where can I sell these Sony PlayStations? Well, I really want to get dollars back anyway, because that's that's what I prefer. So why don't I sell them in the United States? Then I get dollars back. And so you, you have this interesting situation where the demand in the United States for money to f to fund our the gap between savings and investment is playing a direct role in encouraging the imports of goods from other countries. Bastiav wrote about this, um, and I've, I've told the story in, in some classes. He said if, if the, the balance of trade is really the most important, if having a surplus is really the most important, there's a simple way to do that. You consider that, let's say you have a ship that leaves America for China. It gets, it's got a million dollars worth of goods when it leaves China or when it leaves America. It gets to China and we sell those goods for $1.2 million. We now have, uh, you know, we have a million point two. We buy stuff in China and import it into America. We now have a $200,000 trade deficit with China. Okay, same, same exporter has a ship that leaves America again with a million dollars worth of goods on it, gets out in the middle of the ocean, sinks his ship. We now have $2 million worth of exports, and we now have a budget surplus of $800,000. If we want a budget surplus, this the solution is simple. We just need to start sinking container ships. But clearly anyone can see that that's not good for American manufacturing. Yeah, and it's a trade service, sur a trade surplus you're talking about rather than budget surplus. I'm sorry, say yeah. that. I, yeah. I apologize. Yeah. But yeah, and, and, and that that's something that... Bastiao wrote a long time ago. Um, Milton Friedman talked about Reagan saying if you want to, uh, you know, if you are in a, in a boat and your buddy shoots a hole in the bottom of the boat, does it make any sense to shoot another hole in the bottom of the boat? No. I mean, that goes back to we're hurting ourselves when we put these these barriers in place. And, and trade surpluses um, are a convenient tool to help erect those barriers. Right. No. Trade deficits. I'm sorry. Right. Key Keep in mind that if we are, as a country, really serious about shrinking the trade deficit, we could do it, but we can't really do it by putting in import tariffs. The way we'd have to do it is go to the root cause of the problem, which is this gap between savings and investment. The, the biggest imbalance financially that we have in the U.S. economy right now is the uh, federal budget deficit, which this year is going to be around a trillion dollars that we're, the, the government is going to borrow in this country and overseas, combination of domestic and foreign funds. Uh, and it's going to do it again the next year, the way things look, and probably the year after that. And um, this, so the, the federal government is driving the gap between savings and investment. And as that gap gets wider, it's going to bring in, in more goods through overseas through the mechanism I tried to describe earlier. Um, so if, if we want to get rid of the trade deficit or greatly reduce it, we need to get rid of the federal budget deficit. There also are changes we could make to our tax policy that would give more encouragement to savings and less benefit to consumption. Because right now, our tax policy is skewed toward expanding the trade deficit because uh, we um, put a uh, we, we tax people's earnings on their savings account okay 
So we're discouraging people from saving. And we give them tax benefits if they borrow money to buy houses through the mortgage interest deduction. And there, there are good reasons for those policies. I'm not saying that they're inherently bad, but we have to realize their practical effects and how people respond to them and then how it plays out and what it means for other issues like the trade deficit. I want to walk through a few of the uh, talking points or a few of the bullet points that I found at the bottom of a, of a press release from our, our uh, community. And we've, we've talked about the first one. The first one was the United States should eliminate all trade barriers. Um, the second one, uh, we've talked about a bit, but I want to I dig into deeper. Individuals and businesses in a competitive market, not government bureaucrats or politicians, should guide trade decisions. Yeah. Well, that gets back to the reality that, that, uh, that supply and demand are much better at uh, allocating resources than governments are. I mean, letting the market sort it out, individual decisions made by people and companies, uh, they try to get resources in the right place because they want to be able to uh, uh, arbitrage, to make, make a little money by, by um, uh, buying as low as they can and selling as high as they can. It's just the marketplace working. And, it, and it, it, it's a wonderful mechanism for uh, encouraging economic growth. I believe, I believe it was Bastia. I think he said, I'm, I'm positive it was, he said that, that protectionism, socialism, and communism are the same thing, just in different stages of evolution. Well, it's all of them give the government a whole lot more control over the economy and over people's lives than I'm comfortable with. That goes to this right here and what you were just talking about. Is, would you say that, that protectionism is a form of central planning? Well, absolutely. I mean, because it's government making a decision instead of letting people make the decision or government very heavily putting its thumbs on the scale to influence a decision. Okay, because a 25 percent tariff on steel doesn't prevent you from importing it. It's just that you got to pay a big price to do it. You got you got to pay a big tax to the government to in order to just conduct your business. And it goes completely against one of our, our mutually reinforcing principles of mutual benefit. It completely ignores the idea of mutual benefit and picks winners and losers. Mm -hmm. Yes, government does do that. I mean, um, libertarians, and I, and I confess my libertarian roots here, but liber libertarians tend to be uncomfortable with government skewing individual decisions. Uh, if you have faith, as Adam Smith did, in the invisible hand of the marketplace, then you want to get the government out of the way so that the invisible hand can uh, guide production and uh, marketing decisions, guide purchase decisions. Um, ca letting capitalism work has been the route to prosperity that's benefited all of mankind. There's no better way of encouraging human progress than through capitalism and and so, so when you when you talk to me about government control individual liberty it, it all gets back to what what can capitalism accomplish if we let it this third one uh, we've talked a bit about also uh, punitive measures such as tariffs and quotas are an unjust government intrusion into the lives of hardworking Americans. They violate the property and associational rights of individuals 
and should all be eliminated. So let's dig into that a little deeper. How are they, explain why we would say they are unjust government intrusions. So many people would see them as exactly what government should be doing to protect American producers. Why are they unjust? Well, think of the costs they impose on the people who are buying the product of that protected producer. I mean, I have a lot of experience dealing with anti-dumping countervailing duty measures, which are brought uh, by uh, companies or industries in the United States. Uh, you know, th they are dealing with imports that they believe are unfair, and, and they file a case with the U.S. Department of Commerce and the International Trade Commission, and the De Department of Commerce has the job of deciding whether the imported products were dumped, sold at an unfairly low price, and the International Trade Commission then has to decide whether the domestic industry actually was, was injured. In my decade at the International Trade Commission, it became really clear to me that when we followed the law in those cases that it was required, and we put an anti-dumping duty in place, we were shifting the unfairness from that producer who now was protected, and we were shifting it onto users. Not exactly a great public policy to, to take the unfairness and spread it around to, to other people, generally multiplying it in the process. So you'd take $100 of unfairness and spread it around and make it $1,000 of unfairness, and now that's supposed to be better? I mean, it, we, we really need to rethink those policies that would restrict trade and, and be justified by, by, with arguments of fairness. You just can't get there from here. That leads us directly into the next one. Subsidies and other forms of government supports for powerful and politically connected businesses and industries do not create value. They punish consumers, burden taxpayers, insulate businesses from market competition, and should be eliminated. Again, going back to that first one, get rid of all trade barriers. But this idea that, that, that the subsidies and the tariffs are, are, are benefiting American businesses, that's true. They are benefiting some American businesses at the expense of a wide variety of consumers. And, and the key to this is, is understanding the concept of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. Um, and that speaks to that. I, I hope I can get you to do the same. Well, yeah. I mean, Clearly, when a government gives a subsidy to a company, that is a benefit, at least in the near term, to that company. It may not be a benefit in the long term because it might keep that company from uh, investing or, or innovating or doing things that it needs to be to stay competitive in an evolving world and instead lock it into doing what they've been doing before because now the government's giving them some extra money so they can keep doing it and stay in business. Okay? Yeah, we're, we're kind of seeing that with steel right now, aren't we? Absolutely. Where, where Nucor came in and they were really innovative in their, their, their smaller plants and they, they were doing a lot of interesting things. The story of Nucor, I first learned in a book called uh, Good to Great. Uh, talked about Nucor a lot and how they went from where they were to what they're doing today. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, some of these other mills, they didn't innovate. They were comfortable where they were. And now we see with the tariffs, some of those mills are actually having to close down because they can't compete with with the, the cost of steel where it's at. And so we see while they may have been essentially fat and happy at one time with what they were getting, now it's actually come back to hurt them. Yeah, and it's at, uh, um, also... Uh, uh, encumbered by the reality that the demand base for steel 
in the United States has not been growing because the price is so high and, mm -hmm. and the steel containing products can come from other countries without a tariff. So, so, you know, you put a high enough tariff on steel and you shrink the steel using economy in this country. There, there are repercussions. And when you raise the price of something, you, people will stop using it or they'll mm -hmm. find a different avenue. And like you said before, um, for every one person working in steel, there are somewhere between 40 and 50 working in steel consumption. So right. for everyone making it, there are 40 to 50 consuming it. Right. And those people, those people get hurt. They, those people get punished mm -hmm. because it goes back to what is seen and unseen. I keep referencing Bastia, but mm -hmm. he's so, you know, his work is so key to this subject. You see, like we said before, you see on the news 700 new jobs at this this uh, steel mill. Mm -hmm. You never see the story about the jobs that weren't created because of the cost of the you know, increased cost of steel. You never see the news story that says 1,500 jobs weren't created at this construction site today because it never happened. Mm -hmm. Those those costs are unseen because they never happen, and that's how people are punished. And one question I've always asked is. If, we, if you believe in this, if you believe in putting a tariff in place to help steel manufacturers and steel workers, why are steel workers more important than construction workers? Aren't, aren't they both worth, worthy of a job? Why is, why is construction less worthy than steel manufacturing? Because people don't often see what we're talking about here. When you, when you do this, you are punishing people downstream that you may never know. Well, and, and let's remember that taxpayers count for something, too. I mean, these subsidies are paid for by our tax dollars, and we would all wish that our tax dollars would be used well and for really important public purposes. I don't think spreading subsidy money around the economy is a very, it's, a, it's, it's a, not an important public purpose. In fact, it's the opposite. It's, it's, it, 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 it creates a drag, net drag on the economy. And it not only hurts taxpayers, but think also of consumers. One, one thing that I talk about is you are lowering people's standard of living because now they have to pay more for an item they wouldn't have to before. Mm -hmm. So that money that they have to pay for this, they can't put in a bank. They can't save. They can't say, now I'm going to save for a house because their cost of living keeps increasing due to this. And that's another unseen, another thing that, that another form of punishment that these mm -hmm. barriers cost. Mm -hmm. Trade disputes should be resolved through existing international trade agreements and organizations. I have it on, on good authority that the World Trade Organization is pretty much worthless Uh <laughs> I'm just well, saying, I, this is what I hear. Uh, I would beg to differ. Uh, I understand that the current administration has a generally uh, um, unfavorable view of international organizations. Okay, um, But I can make an argument on behalf of the WTO that might, might be meaningful. Think of what life was like in global trade before we had the rules-based international trading system. And you got to go back a number of decades. You got to go back to the Smoot-Hawley Tariff of 1930, which uh, was put in place. It was the, the tariff levels were set at the highest they'd been in over 100 years in the United States. And 
Other countries didn't like that. All of a sudden, we were really discriminating against their stuff. So they retaliated, and then we counter-retaliated it, and global trade shrunk by two-thirds between 1929 and 1934. And the Smoot-Hawley tariff is generally given credit, which I think it deserves, for helping to deepen and lengthen the Great Depression. Now, it didn't cause the Great Depression because it, it didn't go into effect until six months after the stock market crash in October 1929. But it was such a bad policy response to an already challenging economic situation that it just pushed things down the, the staircase and, and the world suffered. The whole world suffered for a long time because of what the United States did and what the other countries did in response. And if I'm not mistaken, we had a trade surplus then. Uh, it could be. I don't recall that, but it may, may well have been the case. But then seeing what how, how difficult the circumstances were, the Franklin Roosevelt administration started to take some steps to um, reverse things. And they got Congress to give them authority to negotiate on a country-by-country -country basis some tariff reductions. And so even as uh, the Depression was going on through the 30s, there start, they started in modest ways to unwind the damage. Then we had World War II, which really changed the focus. And there was a lot of economic activity, and that helped pull the United States out of the Great Depression. But after the war, countries who... Um, Countries decided basically that maybe in, instead of fighting with each other, we should try to be more open to trading with each other. Because there's there's a saying that when trade doesn't cross borders, armies do. And that, of course, isn't true in every situation. But there's a lot to be said for that, that if countries are willing to buy and sell with each with each other, then you don't need to go conquer them because you can you can get all the coffee and bananas that you want just by buying them. Life is much simpler that way, and you don't have the destruction in the, in the process. So, so 23 countries came together, led by the United States in 1947, and they created what was then called the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And it was uh, a, an agreement to reduce tariffs over time. There were eight major rounds of negotiations under the GATT, uh, ending in uh, 1994 with the Uruguay Round Agreement that created the, the WTO that then went into place in 1995. So, uh, and the reductions that we saw in tariffs over that time really were very, very beneficial to the global, uh, to global trade. Um, the analysis that I've done shows that from 1948 up to the, the current time, we have seen an expansion in global trade of about 35 times. So just this huge opportunity to get to use resources better by allowing them to move across borders. Um, now, the WTO has had uh, two major parts. One is the negotiating part, uh, where the WTO is without much success at the moment, trying to do some further negotiations toward liberalization. Don't know how much success that they'll have. The other part of the WTO that has gotten a lot of support over time has been the dispute settlement function. And th this is uh, perhaps the WTO's proudest accomplishment. Um, 
More than 500 cases have been filed and decided since uh, the WTO was created. And uh, the United States has brought more than 120 cases against other countries on fair trade practices. And we have uh, won in 90% of those cases. So we're pretty good at using the dispute settlement system of the WTO to deal with real problems in world trade. Um, frankly, I think we should have done much more of that with China. I think it was an error on the part of initially the Bush administration and then certainly the Obama administration not to be more active in filing dispute settlement cases against China because China came into the WTO at 2001 and it had made a lot of domestic reforms to in order to meet the qualifications of the WTO and it had agreed to do some more things that looked like it would continue moving in a market-oriented way. So I think it was perfectly reasonable to allow China to enter the WTO at that point. What was not a good idea in retrospect was as China started to do things that sort of bumped up against the rules, we let them get away with it for too long. And, and the, those dispute settlement cases that were brought of which the United States uh, was involved in several, uh, China actually did a fairly good job of accepting the when it lost, accepting that outcome and adjusting its policies to, um, uh, you know, to to ad address whatever the issue had been. So I think I think that's such a crucial point. To I, I want to stop and emphasize on that when when challenges have been brought against China through the World Trade Organization, and China has been found to be in violation of the rules. Mm -hmm. Their compliance has been quite good. Pretty decent. You know, you could quibble about one thing or another, but you can't say they aren't trying. You can't say they're just being a, a scofflaw in terms of uh, living up to their WTO obligations as they understand them after dispute settlement happens, okay? Uh, my view is that the current administration made a, a, an error by not undertaking a very active dispute settlement approach to China. That, that would have been a perfectly justifiable way to clamp down on many of China's policies that are so troubling. Some of the intellectual property ones, some of the, uh, the uh, um, um, the requirements that they place on firms investing in the United States, the uh, or investing in China rather, um, the subsidies that they use so broadly across their economy. I mean, there there are ways to challenge those under the WTO process. Now, because this administration isn't much of a fan of international organizations, it's chosen not to do much of this. It has it has continued to uh, pursue those cases that the Obama administration had brought toward the end of their time, but, uh, including one on uh, Chinese subsidies for the production of wheat, corn, and rice, which it's a big issue for all those growers in the United States. And, you know, the, the, we've won that one, and China is sorting out now how it's going to deal with it. And I, 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 think there's a reasonable chance that they will unless it gets caught up in the broader trade war and they decide not to move on it. I think there's a, a, a distrust of the WTO based on on a belief that when we go to them, we're somehow losing our power as a country or we're losing our sovereignty. Basically, we're exporting it to this this other power who then has the authority to tell us what we must do. When 
when the United States loses a case, and let's be honest, we lose cases quite frequently because while we do take, we do have complaints with other countries, quite a few countries have complaints about what we do also. Mm -hmm. And when we lose that, what happens then? Do, does the WTO then send uh, armed forces to our mm -hmm. factories and says, you need to comply with this? Does it send people to D.C. and say, mm -hmm. say we're going to now oversee your policies? Yeah. What, what happens? Well, and of course, the WTO doesn't have an army. It, it, its, members, Yet. <laughs> <laughs> its members have to, um, have to uh, enforce the rules themselves, and they have to have a certain amount of self-discipline or the system breaks down. The United States has done a pretty good job of changing its policies to uh, meet whatever cases it's lost at the WTO. But, you know, the WTO is only as good as its membership. It, it, uh, um, the rules that it has made ha have all involved U.S. input. Okay, It's not like somebody else is sitting over in Geneva just deciding how things should be run and the United States now has to s step up and, and meet their requirements. The United States is the largest financial contributor to the WTO. We're the largest economy in the world. We just have been a very big part of creating that organization and sustaining it over time because of the belief that it helps to sustain the, in, the integrated global economy uh, that where trade is based on rules and people understand what the rights and obligations are. We could... I think about all the uh, consternation around the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the WTO. Mm -hmm. Am I incorrect in saying we could we could solve all these problems if we just went ahead and did point one, if we just eliminated all trade barriers? Would we need the TPT or TPP or the WTO well, or any of that? Yeah. Two issues. Okay. Uh, we could help ourselves a great deal by unilaterally eliminating all of our trade barriers. Okay, that would be a big help to the United States. Okay, but now the second part. If we did that, it, we wouldn't assume that overnight all the TPP member countries, for instance, would also do it. There is, There can be an advantage in, in being involved in a negotiation with other countries, trying to get everybody to reduce barriers, preferably to zero, over some period of time. And the, the TPP made a lot of progress at that. The WTO itself has made a great deal of progress at that. Um, the, the NAFTA made a great deal of progress. Okay, uh, So the United States benefits if it ends its own import barriers, but we also benefit if other countries reform their policies to allow greater market access for our goods going there. I mean, we, we have to remember that exports are important too. I know I talked about mostly about imports earlier, but um, we need to be able to export in order to be able to pay for our imports without having too skewed a balance of trade, okay? And frankly, we're really good at producing a lot of stuff in the United States that other countries want to buy, and we ha almost have a moral obligation to be willing to sell it to them. You know, we don't want to keep it all, to, all ourselves. When I think about uh, our position on trade, and I go back to, I, I try to think of why we do the things we do through the lens of our network vision mm -hmm. and the, the principles that make up our network vision. For me, it always comes back to um, mutual benefit. It comes back to uh, more, more specifically comparative advantage 
and opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. And we, we can't ignore that. And I, I asked someone the other day, do the laws of economics, do they apply to the rest of the world or just the United States? You know, if, if China wants to violate all the laws of economics, how's that going to work out for them? Well, it's not working out very well, frankly. I mean, they have a subsidy machine that kicks out money to their state-owned enterprises that, that covers their losses and keeps them in business, and, and they don't have any self-correcting device for shutting that off. I could give the steel example again, if you'd like. You know, if, you, if you go back a, a little more than, well, not, not quite 25 years, then the United States and China produced the same amount of steel, about 100 million metric tons a year. Okay. China turned on the subsidy switch and decided it needed to build more steel mills. So it started a process of building mills, which continues to this day. I know theoretically they're trying to slow it down. I don't think they really have wrestled that beast into submission yet. But China went from producing 100 million tons a year to now, last year, 925 million tons, more or less, an increase of more than ninefold. They have become but far and away the largest producer of steel in the world. They produce more than half of all steel in the world. Okay, And the way they run the business, it's in essence, they take $100 of input, they run it through an expensive steel milling process, and they sell the output for $90. And that's not a get-rich-quick scheme. They lose every day on their steel business. They employ a lot of people, not very efficiently, but they employ them. Uh, they can increase gross output, certainly in tons they can increase it, um, and yet uh, they are suffering big economic losses. And if they, it was just happening to them and they were doing it to themselves, we probably wouldn't worry about it so much. The reason it's of concern is that they are, as they export steel, they in essence are exporting the adjustment costs, shifting some of the cost of their policy stupidity to the rest of the world. And that's that's troublesome. That we see that as unfair trade, and it is unfair. Um, and so we can't fix that problem only by eliminating our own barriers. We we need to find ways to engage with China to get them to change it. Having said that, if I can take this example a little farther, what would economists advise us to do with? policy in regard to China's steel here in the United States. Okay, Since, in essence, by being willing to sell steel for less than it's worth, China is making a decision to transfer wealth from them to us. Uh, And so the rational response for us, the United States, would be to say, first of all, eliminate all the steel import barriers so we could benefit from that wealth transfer to the maximum extent possible. But we should say to the Chinese, thank you for for selling us all that steel for less than it's worth. Would you please keep transferring wealth to us? Um, That approach, it would have two advantages. One is it would give us some short-term benefits in steel pricing. But the longer-term, more important benefit is I think it would do a very good job of getting the Chinese leadership to rethink what they are doing. Right now, they like the paradigm. You know, there's been this global steel forum of 30 countries that's hosted by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. And 
they've tried to deal with steel over capacity and they get together a couple times a year, the, all those countries sitting around a table and countries take turns uh, saying, China, we don't like what you're doing because you're shifting too many adjustment costs to us. And, and you know, Chinese sit there and think, hmm, if all those countries don't like what we're doing, we must be doing something right. <laughs> so let's keep doing it. So, so the paradigm we have now is just uh, guaranteed to perpetuate the problem, okay? By shifting the paradigm and getting the Chinese to let, letting the Chinese leadership know that we think they are being silly by the, their policy framework, I think it would get them to change fairly quickly. The Chinese have a very strong cultural need to save face. Xi Jinping does not want to look stupid in front of his own people. If, if the Western countries start to hint that, hey, we think you look stupid, I think they'd change the policy. So um, there is hope for resolving some of these problems, but we have to have more confidence in the underlying economics. We have to have more confidence in the strength of the U.S. system vis-a-vis -vis China. China has an ossified government-driven system. Yes, they do have some innovation. Yes, they do some R&D. They don't have very much innovation relative to us, and a lot of their R&D is just it's making gradual improvements on what already exists rather than uh, you know kind of the breakthrough R&D that we have been able to accomplish in this country over time. Um, so the, the, the secret to dealing with China, I think, is not to try to be more like them, but to make sure that the United States stays like us. We need to understand our strengths and build on them and let individual freedom and an open economy with lots of opportunity, let that be the driver. And because that will keep us in good stead over the time, over the long term. And China isn't going to become an, an economic ir irrelevancy of given enough decades of doing what they're doing now. I think they will change some. I just don't know how and when, because they're going to collapse under their own weight, even if they're their environmental problems don't get to them first. I mean, that's a, you know, because not only do they have too much steel, they have not enough air quality, water quality control. And, you know, it's very difficult to enjoy a day in Beijing when the smog is, is thick, which it is much of the time. There is there is kind of a uh, mental model there that I've I've talked about before that has bothered me in the idea that we we should, as an America, as a, as, a, as a country, we should adjust to do more like they're doing. That really, really exposes a lack of faith in the free market. And Milton Friedman said it best. He said a lack of faith in the free market is a lack of faith in freedom itself. Yeah. One thing we haven't talked about, we've talked about equal rights. We've talked about mutual benefit. We've talked about openness. We've not talked much about self-actualization. Yeah. And... I want to take it back to something you were talking about earlier about how capitalism has led to the most prosperity that capitalism when allowed to flourish and it's we can admit it has never been capitalism has never been fully without some sort of mixed economy um but when it has has been closest to its purest form it has done the most good for the most people great book out there that i've read recently um, by Brink Lindsay, Age of Abundance. Have you have you no, read? I know Brink, but I've not read the book. In this book, he describes how 
how it's very much based on Maslow. And when I read, I bought it, of course, at a thrift store, but that's beside the point. When I bought it, I said, this looks interesting. I want to read this. And this was before the emphasis on Maslow in our vision, the emphasis on, on self-actualization. I start digging into it. He starts talking about Maslow. He starts talking about how the most basic needs are being met. And when you have that food, shelter, basic security, you can start moving up on that uh, hierarchy of needs. And he describes how throughout American history, we have seen one uh, incidence, one big cultural shift that is a, evidence of that generation reaching like a self-actualization so that he, he talks a lot about the 60s ah. being a, a big uh, age, uh, the age of abundance there created a, a moment of self-actualization where you saw a lot of people who were, who were able to to focus on self-actualization because all the other needs were being met. They had the, I had the opportunity to, and what he found, which I thought was interesting, he said, capitalism created the opportunity for socialists to rail against the institution, which gave them the opportunity to self-actualize. But, you know, if you don't mind, if you could talk about how trade actually leads to the opportunity for self-actualization. One of, I guess, our, our, the most important resource we have in the United States is our human potential that, that all of us have. Um, and we, I don't think we can achieve maximum, the maximum of our potential if we are going to try to live in a limited world, okay, a world of just the United States by itself. I truly believe that by engaging with other countries, by importing from them, exporting to them, sharing ideas, um, sometimes filing dispute settlement against them at the WTO, I I really think that uh, we as individuals and as a country can achieve higher levels and then then next year perhaps a higher level again. if we if we have confidence in ourselves, we need to be willing to to, to engage with with others. You know, we I'm engaging with you. You live in Missouri. It's natural for us. Uh, I also engage naturally with friends and other associates from other countries. Um, I am more self actualized by doing that, and I think our country clumsily, with difficulty, but very clearly over time has moved to a higher, higher level of actualization as a country, of growing into what we can be and what we ought to try to be going forward. We need to keep working on it as individuals and as a country. But I don't think we should be pessimistic. I think that uh, uh, the, the future actually is very bright, assuming we Uh, remain true to our principles and true to our convictions and are willing to work hard and get out there and compete. I can't imagine a more appropriate way to end this podcast than what you just said. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Duane. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's top priority, please email them to me at topriority at afphq.org. 
We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.